the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Live from Northern California, it's Lifeline with Craig Roberts. He's the host of Northern California's longest-running conservative talk show. He's a man with a message, a conservative with compassion. He's Lifeline's own Craig Roberts. And a pleasant good afternoon to you. Welcome. Good to have you on board for this Thursday, March 30th edition of Lifeline. And I have to tell you, some late news coming into the KFAX newsroom, which is kind of um, readjusting slightly our, our program content on the show today. Uh, though, before I share this news with you, let me say that while we will uh, spend a little time talking about the potential ripple effect of all of this, we're not going to go into any granular detail, and that's simply because we can't comment about what we don't know. And there are details related to what I'm about to share with you that have not been revealed yet, will perhaps not be made public for several more days, so it may be well into next week before we'll be in a position to have an intelligent conversation related to all of the facts. That said, let me share with you the news that just came off the wire service a few moments ago. Um, The New York Times, one of many news outlets, reporting that a grand jury in New York has voted just this afternoon to indict former President Donald Trump. The paper indicates it is learned by four individuals with close knowledge of the case that the panel indicted President Trump this afternoon for his role in paying hush money to an adult film actress. Now, the indictment is reportedly under seal by the Manhattan District Attorney's Office and likely will remain that way for at least a few days until it is publicly announced. At that time, President Trump is expected to surrender and then enter a plea. This is a historic moment. It is the first time a former president has faced criminal charges of any sort. The president is also simultaneously being investigated in Georgia on charges that he attempted to impact the election results in that state. So, not a proud moment, to be sure, in American history. And um, as we lead off the conversation this afternoon, Jerry Boyer joins us. Jerry is a, an economist well-known public speaker and the publisher of Affluent Investor Daily. And, uh, Jerry, I realize from a political standpoint this is slightly out of your wheelhouse, but I'm curious to get your take on this because certainly news of this sort and with the, with the understanding, with the caveat that Wall Street eschews instability. It likes predictability. It doesn't like it when the Fed goes in and toys with the overnight rate. It doesn't like it when there is political instability stability that could potentially throw investors off, set fear into the markets, things of this sort. And to be sure, as we share the news this afternoon of a historical moment of a former president being formally 
indicted has got to send shockwaves through Wall Street. How do you think ultimately the markets are going to react, particularly in the wake of some of the instability that we've seen on the heels of not just the impact of the the Russia-Ukraine conflict, but of course uh, inflationary issues here at home, the continued uptick in the overnight lending rate as the Fed attempts to try and rein in inflation and added to that some of the instability with some in the banking system that we talked about on your last visit. How do you think Wall Street's going to react to all of this? I don't expect much of a direct reaction from Wall Street. Really? Um, uh, no, I, I mean, there's a long-term sort of thing, uh, but I would not expect there to be a huge reaction. I mean, it's, it would be an entirely different thing if we were talking about a sitting president, right? If, of course. If there, what, what we've seen is, for, uh, for example, when Bill Clinton uh, was impeached, markets dropped. When um, President uh, Trump was impeached, markets dropped. So markets get pretty concerned about the disruption uh, when you have a president because it's seen as a distraction, it's seen as unstable. I, I really don't expect um, like a, a major reaction to this news by markets in terms of, oh, this event happened and we're going to respond to this event. I think it's more like it adds to a general narrative of a nation um, of, on the precipice um, a nation highly divided uh, and in some ways more socially fragile than we've seen for a long time. Um, and I think that, you know, that's really a concern. Look, I, I know I'm, I'm trying to thread a needle here, right, because there are people listening right now who are thinking, finally, you know, Trump's going to get what's his. Right. And there are other people who are thinking this is he, he's a political prisoner. This is terrible. And we need to we need to take to the streets, you know, and, and have violent revolution against the deep state. I mean, that's what the country's like. I'm not going to take sides. What I'm going to say is that this whole dynamic is the sort of thing that we kind of get used to seeing in third world countries, not in the first world. And I think that markets, international markets in general, look at the United States and say, is this the reserve currency of the world? Is this the great power? Is this the place where the rule of law holds? Um, or is this a place that's become like the rest of the nations, where if you lose an election, you might lose your freedom? Um, and where, you know, presidents or incumbents, you know, are, are credibly accused of using their authority to, you know, try to stay in office. So the kind of back and forth, which no matter which side you're on in this, the, the level of division between the sides is reminiscent of a Latin American political system and unstable rather than of the, you know, the United States, the American political system. So not so necessarily that, that, in your opinion, is that. Wall Street reacting, however, dependent upon how all this plays out, how... Former President Trump reacts publicly, which I think we can we can probably guess he's not going to be too happy with this. So no. could, could could the destabilizing factor be? And I realize that this is you know this is like the proverbial uh, onion. There's many layers to this, but could the destabilizing factor economically be, as you point out, not necessarily Wall Street's reaction, but Wall Street's reaction to the nation's reaction? In other words, That's if it. we see protests yeah. on the street, if we see people looking at this and say, you know what? 
from a foreign investor standpoint, I don't know that I want to be a part of this. There could be a ripple effect so that the reaction then is not directly to the indictment, but the reaction is to the reaction. Yes. If we don't keep our heads, global markets will notice. Uh, if we pour out into the streets in protest, especially if it's violent protest, violent protest, then global markets will notice. And by the way, we're already in a zone, and this is a little bit scary to me. We're already in a zone where we're um, continuing with a um, a banking crisis that's emanated from this from where you are right now from that general zone of the country right so that's a local crisis to you but that is in some ways something the globe is watching the dollar has been falling lately um and china has been launching these kind of bilateral trade agreements um denominated in yuan as close as with brazil you know a traditionally an american um trading partner and of course with with russia so oil markets are starting to be um are, are starting to be traded in yuan so there's a lot of things happening at the same time but, you know i don't think we can take too many i don't think we can take too many shoves <laughs> before we go off a cliff um so so it's really important. I mean, I, I, look, this, I, I know this may sound strange to people, but it shouldn't, but it may. We need the Holy Spirit right now. We need, we need a spirit of peace and love and restraint and a pulling back from violence right now because the country is not immortal. Um, I think, uh, well, well, from my own state, Pennsylvania, one of the founders, uh, Dickinson, said um, that, you know, nations, uh, people get punished or rewarded forever in, in heaven or hell. Nations are just here on this earth, so they have to get rewarded here or punished here. So if we keep abusing our institutions the way we're abusing our institutions and abusing one another and not follow the Christian path, then the United States, does. It's, there's no guarantee in the Bible, there's no guarantee anywhere that America America goes on forever and ever. So we have to be really careful at times like this. So I'd say we wait, we see what pans out, we find out what the evidence says. I, I think markets will do the same if the country doesn't overreact. But let's say we have um, some of you know, high-ranking officials, Democrats, weighing in you know, with kind of um, lock them up rhetoric, or Republicans saying, this is going to lead to violence in the street. We have, if we have a lot of histrionic rhetoric from our elected officials, uh, yeah, I think markets would react to that. And I want to, um, when we come back after a timeout, Jerry, I want to open this up a little bit broader. And again, I, I apologize, a bit of a shift from what we had, had planned to talk about. But you know, it's, it's, it's important news that I think listeners certainly who are wondering, okay, how is this going to impact the stability of my nation? And then as you sort of think through all of your interests, it at some point most naturally turns to your family's financial stability, be it could you lose your job because there's riding that closes down the, the city, or could this potentially impact the markets that therefore has a dilatorious impact on your retirement savings? So retirement is scheduled for, you know, months from now. Do you get forced to put that off because all of a sudden the markets tank? Important questions here, but one one of the big questions, and you kind of alluded to this, and that is the global response, knowing that just recently two of, and I know some people don't like this language, but I'm going to use it anyway because I think it's true, two of our biggest avowed enemies, Russia and China, recently, within the last week, entering into further trade agreements, um, further synergy going on in the economic realm. And, you know, while some might argue, well, we were kind of 
kind of hear sort of once before, in fact, exactly 50-something years ago in 1973. This kind of feels like familiar territory in terms of a potential constitutional crisis and the president, or an ex-president in this case, at the very center of all that. And yet there are some dynamics that are very different today. What are those dynamics that are different and how could they potentially impact your own financial well-being in the wake of this? We're going to get some insights from Jerry Boyer in just a moment. We'll also talk a bit about um, what's going on in relationship to a lot of this wokeness as it ties into J.P. Morgan Chase. All that and more as this edition of Lifeline continues. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. If you're tuning in a bit late, we shared the news a few moments ago that uh, it is now being reported, and this has been confirmed by the Manhattan DA's office, that the grand jury in New York has handed down a 34-point indictment against former President Donald Trump. There's a lot more news to come regarding this. We do not know the details of the indictment, and so we're not going to dive too deep into trying to have any sort of a meaningful conversation about information that we simply don't have before us. But there are broader questions related to, as we're learning from our guest today, Jerry Moyer, what this might mean in terms of the nation's reaction and the subsequent reaction by investors and Wall Street. Uh, Jerry Boyer, as we mentioned, is the publisher of Affluent Investor Daily. More information, by the way, about this very informative newsletter if you go online to affluentinvestor.com. That's affluentinvestor.com. Jerry, I'm curious, uh, while this is certainly fresh, unprecedented territory in American political history. This is not, however, the first time that we've seen a bit of a constitutional sort of presidential office-related crisis. We have to go back exactly 50 years ago to 1973. Of course, then it was Richard Nixon, and it was the White House break, I mean, the uh, Watergate break-in. In the end, I have to wonder if maybe the big difference in the dynamic between the events of 1973 versus the events of 2023 is, in 1973, um, the doors had barely been opened with China. It was not yet a trading partner of anyone, so it didn't have nearly the amount of clout or financial wherewithal to create any headaches for the United States, and Russia in the form of the Soviet Union, was an avowed enemy of ours with whom we had no financial relationships. And other than their influence on Eastern Europe, they weren't a very significant player. In fact, the, the only so-called fat cat in the room, the, 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 the big dog singularly in 1973, was the United States. But all of that has changed in the last 50 years. And, and I have to wonder, as you might analyze this from the way it's being analyzed tonight in Russia, in Moscow, and in China in Beijing, what are they thinking about all of this? And when we add the context of the recent economic summit between uh, Xi and uh, Putin, could this really spell some potential trouble for us on the global economic stage, hinting back to what you suggested in the previous segment, and that is the idea that, you know, they could be making hay while the sun shines and, and, uh, you know, just enjoying our pain and in the meanwhile, helping to supplant our position and ultimately the dollar's position as sort of the global economic powerhouse that up to now we have been. 
Yeah, yeah, that's a good observation. Fifty-year anniversary. Um, uh, breaking China off from Russia was a masterstroke of geopolitics, um, and um, we had you know wiser people then. For all the problems with Nixon, that was a pretty good geopolitical strategy. I mean, Kissinger was the one who uh, you know kind of um, came up with it, but still, that was a policy masterstroke. Um, our less adept um, international relations experts have undone that, and now China and Russia are reunited. Um, you know, Russia's not communist anymore. Uh, China's you know, probably more communist than it was in 1973 in some ways. Um, and the problem is that um, China is really now a global economic superpower. Uh, so, I mean, it was important to break them up back then, and they weren't as much of a threat. Um, now China is much more of a threat. Uh, so there's a great deal more vulnerability, and I think there was a lot of fecklessness in terms of pushing those two countries back together, a lot of mishandling of the Russia situation, um, because we, we might have been able to kept them, get them split up or, or even split them up more so. The other thing is, in 1973, we officially really went off um, the reserve currency gold standard. We, we kind of half did it in 1971, but in 1973, we made it a good deal more official. But, the, you know... The, we could take that because we were basically half of the world economy then. Uh, now we're a quarter of the world economy and dropping. Uh, so the, the the world doesn't have to take that from us anymore. I mean, that was, um, that was a move by going off the gold standard and essentially violating our pledge to the world. We did something risky, but we were so powerful that we got away with it. But now we have these inflationary policies, and we're not powerful enough to get away with it. Like I said, we're, you know, we were half the global GDP. Now we're, you know, somewhere between a quarter falling down to a fifth of global GDP. And the other powers are rising. China's, China's economy is growing faster than ours. So there's a great deal more vulnerability now than there was then. Um, and, of course, we're in the middle of a banking crisis, and we have um, pursued very inflationary policies. And we've been able to get away with it because of the United States reserve currency status. We've been able to just print money that the government can use to spend. And even though we've had inflation that's higher than what we're used to, we haven't had inflation that's as high as we would have if the world wasn't willing to keep absorbing the extra dollars we print. So we have to be really careful right now. And that includes the kind of stuff that's going on right now. An ex-president in handcuffs is a dangerous moment. How we respond to that dangerous moment can either calm it down or make it more dangerous. And this is a time I really think that Christians need to pray. We need some supernatural wisdom. We need the restraint. Um, uh, you know, we need the restraint of the Holy Spirit. Christian leaders need to be voices of wisdom, not stoking fire. And our political leaders, please be leaders. Don't stoke the fire. Let's get through this in a legal way. Um, and because we have foreign adversaries that are teaming up even this week, it's interesting in the providence of God the way things are lining up. So we have challenges, we have financial challenges, we have geopolitical challenges. This is no time for us to rip ourselves apart. Yeah, and, and this is certainly, and I wish I could, could underscore, highlight, put in neon signs what you just said for the world to see, because this is, this has, has sort of increased the terms of engagement exponentially so that we've, you know, for the longest time here, over the last four or five years, it's been all 
all about political posturing and juxtaposition of one party against the other and who's going to come out on top, et cetera, et cetera. I think this takes us from worries about who's going to be the, the political victor to worries about whether or not the nation is going to be a survivor or a victor up against all of this, given the fact that unlike 1973, we've got some enemies and we have enemies that are well-equipped. And, you know, we kind of learned this. You and I talked during the height of COVID when we saw, you know, the cessation of all of the shipments coming into the United States, China shutting down manufacturing, trying to get a, a handle on the spread of COVID. And we watched the, the ships stacking up, uh, you know, to unbelievable degrees off the coast of California as they couldn't right. unload fast enough. And so we saw the, the impact of the global economy of which we were all a part, which, again, was not a factor in 1973. And, you know, as, as we talk about, well, we should have done more to sort of um, even out the economic relationship between the United States and China decades ago. And that certainly has always been my opinion. Now I have to wonder if it's a little bit too little, too late. And the challenge being that unlike the past, I mean, say, for example, World War II, the United States was such a manufacturing powerhouse, the number one producer of steel, the number one producer of aluminum, that when called upon by the president to shift to a war footing, we were able to pivot on a dime because we had all of that infrastructure already in place. You're making cars at the Ford factory on Tuesday, and by Friday, you're making tanks. The problem, of course, today is that so much of that manufacturing infrastructure doesn't exist here. So now it's not just a matter of retooling. It's having to build and to train and to start from scratch. And when a lot of the natural resources were reliant upon coming in from overseas, wow, a a geopolitical event could be really dangerous for us. Yeah, I'm in Pittsburgh. We made a lot of we made a lot more steel, a lot a lot a higher proportion of the world's steel than we do now. And by the way, it's not just about steel; it's also about silicon. It's chips. So many of our chips are made overseas, in China or adjacent to China in Taiwan. So, I mean, if we have rising geopolitical tensions that lead to economic dislocation, we're not in the position we once were. We can we can't kind of go it alone. Um, and so, I I agree. We got to intertwine with the Chinese economy, but we also have to be careful about how we get unintertwined. By the way, I'm looking at markets right now, so, uh, you know, because we're talking about how our market's reacting. The futures markets, looking f- towards tomorrow, are, are slightly up. They're not scared. The uh, gold is up a bit, you know, like $20, $30 um, today. It went up a little bit before the indictment, so somebody leaked something, but it's not up out there signaling, oh no, this is a crisis. So it doesn't have to be a crisis. It only has to be a crisis if we make it a crisis. By the way, there's another market. I don't know if we've talked about this before, but I like to really closely watch what's called the political futures market, um, where essentially it's just like you can bet on futures for stock prices or for currency. You can also um, essentially invest in a futures market for for politics. Uh, so it can imply a probability for election, like who's going to win the presidential election or who's going to win the nomination. And I follow this pretty carefully because I believe there's a lot of wisdom in markets. And what it's showing is the chief beneficiary of this right now is Joe Biden. 
Um, and he is now, according to the futures market, expected to win. Uh, and Trump has fallen somewhat, but is still ahead of DeSantis. But we're talking about shifts of maybe four or five percent, not not earthquakes yet in the futures market. And I found the futures market are probably better predictors than any pundits. And as a pundit, that's not easy for me to say, but it's people with skin in the game. So I also am looking at that. Um, and that's telling me that um, this is not this does not necessarily end Donald Trump's political career. It's a little stumble, but he could come back from this and win the nomination. Well, he certainly has proven himself to be resilient time and time again. I mean, I, uh, most average, you know, putting the word in quotes here, the most average politicians uh, would have been had their goose cooked <laughs> many many events many stories ago uh, so he certainly has proven himself to be very resilient I guess the bigger question for the nation is not how resilient is Donald Trump to survive this but the bigger question is how resilient are we as a nation and can we get over these things and can we see healing and can we come back to 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 some sense of becoming Americans first and foremost instead of simply leading with our, our political affiliation this also raises some broader questions as we talk about the, the synergy, so to speak, between politics and money and politics and Wall Street. And that is, and you touched on this earlier, uh, Jerry, in, in reference to Silicon Valley Bank, where some of the so-called woke policies uh, undoubtedly, if didn't create the problem, certainly exacerbated uh, the organization's problems. And if you think that it begins and ends with Silicon Valley Bank, Oh, no, no, no. Other banks and much bigger names, all a part of this as well. When we come back after a timeout, we're going to unpack some of what's been going on with J.P. Morgan Chase and uh, a recent battle that they have enjoined with the Security Exchange Commission. Never a good idea to go to battle with those folks. We're going to find out what this is all about and and whether or not the, the results of this um, give and take between the SEC and J.P. Morgan is going to finally lay to rest some of this woke approach to banking, or is this just a preview of coming attractions? Jerry Boyer with us tonight. He is an economist, well-known public speaker. You catch him on a lot of television and radio. And, of course, in addition to that, he is the publisher of the Affluent Investor Daily, information online about his informative newsletter by going to affluentinvestor.com. That's affluentinvestor.com. 535 from KFAX. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. All right, we're back to the conversation. Jerry Boyer is with us today. He is an economist. He is a frequent public speaker, helps to educate people on all matters economic, and also the publisher of the Affluent Investor, Affluent Investor Daily. Information available on the web at affluentinvestor.com. That's affluentinvestor.com. Dot com. Um, Jerry, I want to kind of shift gears, although much of this kind of fits hand in glove. We, we sort of in unpacking what transpired with Silicon Valley Bank, recognizing that that certainly not all, but a portion of the culpability for their demise uh, had to do with a lot of the bank's policies. And I recall this is many, many months ago. It might even have been a year ago. Um, Hearing Mike Lindell talk about the fact that he one day out of the blue received a letter from his bank informing him that his business was no longer 
requested or appreciated and that he had 30 days to basically drain his accounts and take his business elsewhere or anticipate a cashier's check for the full amount that he had on deposit. And I thought to myself, what bank does that? And my goodness, if you start cherry cherry picking your depositors based on moral position, political beliefs, religious affiliation. Wow, you could wind up putting yourself out of business. And and sadly, while that hasn't happened with uh, J.P. Morgan Chase, it certainly seems as if they flirted with the idea of putting themselves out of business by just similar behavior. Tell us what's going on here and the dust-up between the SEC and J.P. Morgan Chase. Well, uh, a, um, a shareholder... Uh, David Monson, uh, with whom I work, um, I've done some consulting, um, put a proposal uh, on on the ballot, put a proposal before J.P. Morgan Chase saying at the annual meeting, uh, I would like the owners of the company to vote on a resolution which basically looks at the question of how they make decisions regarding canceling services for somebody um, and are they using political and religious criterion to do so. Some people call this debanking. It's kind of a new word in our vocabulary. Um, so to look at these, are you, are you practicing viewpoint discrimination and therefore doing something which is discriminatory in nature when you're making decisions? Uh, the thing that really triggered this, that there were a number of conservative groups that they had done this to, but they did it to former Ambassador Sam Brownback, a former governor of Kansas, then senator from Kansas, and then United Nations Religious Liberty Ambassador, a strong critic of the uh, of the Chinese government and its abuse of religious liberty. Uh, Ambassador Sam Brownback set up um, a, a nonprofit group, I think it was a 501c4, uh, to fight for religious liberty. And he and his wife went down to their Chase Bank to put a deposit in and the teller said well there's there's no more account your, your account doesn't exist anymore and they had no idea why and they looked into it and they really couldn't get a straight answer but of course they suspected as I think we all do right now it has to do with the political and religious view uh, whether it's an anti-Christian bias or whether it is a desire to do business in China um, and so if, if a critic of the Chinese government that the Chinese government has complained about uh, or um, you know has a real problem with uh, uh, has his bank account canceled or his nonprofit bank account canceled, then, you know, that's a serious problem. So this is something that shareholders have the right to do under American law and under the regulations. They are the owners. It's their company. Uh, well, uh, the companies can go to the Securities and Exchange Commission and say, we don't really think this belongs on the ballot. We don't really want to put this in front of our shareholders. This is just regular, ordinary business. This is just management stuff. Um, you know, as if we're talking about what color paper to put the bank statements on or something like that. Um, you know, yeah, we, yeah, yeah I, a shareholder resolution about ordinary business stuff, uh, you know, that doesn't make sense. But this is about... Um, discrimination and civil rights and the reputation of the company that is owned by the shareholders and shareholders should have a say. And the SEC came back to J.P. Morgan and, reje- and rejected their reasoning um, and uh, did not offer them the permission that they were looking for to leave this off the ballot. So uh, in May, during the annual meeting, there will be a resolution on the ballot where J.P. Morgan Chase shareholders get to say, we want to know exactly how you make these decisions. We want transparency, and we want to know how you're managing the risk of our company 
when it comes to um, our reputation when you, at least on the surface, appear to be engaging in viewpoint-based discrimination when it's offering businesses. By the way, this isn't just banks. You know, website companies do this. You know, they'll they'll take down someone's web hosting ability. They'll take down the IP address. Um, you know, law firms fire customers all the time. We talk about a nation divided. This is exactly the sort of thing we're talking about. These businesses ought to be able to do business with anybody. Um, they shouldn't be censoring or um, denying service based on a political or a religious difference. Well, and the bigger um, thing that comes to, to it down, but it didn't work, so they're, they're going to get a chance to vote on it, and there's going to be a debate. And I, by the way, I, we, this is a powerful tool, and anybody who has owned $2,000 or more in a company for the past three years or more has the right to do this. You, if you're an investor, you have so much more power than you realize you have. You know, what, what I find, I, I, I guess the combination, Jerry, of troubling and fascinating all at the same time is, you know, if we were talking about Chase being a privately held company where the guy that sits in the president's office is also the owner and may choose to do business with certain groups and not do business with others... I may not agree with the reasoning, but it's his business. No shirt, no shoes, no service. Is that discriminating against people that don't wear shoes? Maybe. But if you own the business, it's all yours. Uh, again, I, I don't necessarily support the idea, but, uh, you know, you probably have a right to do it. But this is yeah. a publicly traded company where the potentiality of damaging your shareholders because you're rejecting business or making decisions not based on what is in the best interests of the company, its employees, and get this, its shareholders, but rather the, 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 the wanton will of a handful of members of the board of directors who decided one day, yeah, you know what, we don't like the cut of Craig Roberts' jib, we're not going to do business with him anymore, and if it has a deleterious impact on our share values or on the, uh, the profit margins of our company, oh well. I mean, it just seems to me that there is a degree to this that is not only, um, quite frankly, morally reprehensible, if not at the minimum questionable, but but even from just a good business approach doesn't seem to make a lot of sense. Yeah, and it really does matter whether you're privately owned or publicly traded. Um, so, for instance, my wife and I own a couple of um, family businesses. Uh, there's a situation where there was somebody who, whose business did, we didn't want because she had been an operator of abortion clinics. And so she had made money by the taking of human life. Um, we didn't want anything to do with any, with any business dealings with her. And we told her that. We explained, or I did, I explained why. Uh, and it was an opportunity to talk to her about, you know, the fact that she's going to face judgment someday and she's got some explaining to do. Um, there was another situation where there was a tobacco lobbyist who asked us about, uh, about advertising money. And we didn't take that. Um, now, that was a hit to the business. But it's our business, right? That was a hit to our bottom line. But once you, if we went public with this, once you sell, and that's a different situation. And I remember a friend of mine, Tom Strobar, was objecting at the um, Starbucks annual meeting when they endorsed gay marriage for the first time. And, uh, and Howard Schultz said, um, well, I, you know, if, if, if you shouldn't own shares in our company. If you don't believe in gay marriage, you shouldn't own shares in our company. Sorry, man. You sold shares in the company. You don't get to decide who owns them. You've made a bucket of money by selling the
selling those shares publicly. Now, you work for Tom, not the other way around. And I think some of these big CEOs have gotten confused about who's the boss. They are the hired help. I understand they're very highly skilled hired help. They're very valuable hired help. Uh, but, you know, the people who run these companies, uh, you know, the, 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 you know, the, the CEOs of these gigantic banks, the Jamie Diamonds, et cetera, uh, and the, um, um, uh, you know, the Brian Moynihan's and uh, Carl Icahn's. Carl Icahn's. I was thinking more of the, like Larry Fink's. The people who have been kind of out front on this. Oh, yeah, yeah. These, these guys, listen, you're, you're our butlers. You're very highly paid butlers. You're really great butlers, but you're the hired help, and you need a reminder of that because I think they've forgotten it. Yeah, undoubtedly so. Jerry Boyer with us on this edition of Lifeline Information, available about Jerry's good work online at affluentinvestor.com, affluentinvestor.com. Before we wrap this up, we're going to put a, a, a bit of a bow around it related to a recent veto by President Biden related to so-called ESG investing. Why? Do what? We'll tell you more as Lifeline continues. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. ESG, or so-called environmental social governance investing, back in the news. Recently, the president issued a veto um, in relationship to ESG investing. And uh, I wanted to tend, uh, take a moment here before we wrap up the hour with Jerry Boyer and get a little insight to all of this. Now, Jerry, I know that there are, well, there, there are whole investment organizations set up that, that if somebody wishes wishes to invest, for example, being morally sensitive or or socially aware. Maybe, for example, when I do my investments, I want to make sure that when I buy that big mutual fund, part of it is not being held in a tobacco company because I believe that, that cigarette smoking is hazardous to one's health. Or I want to make sure that it's not in a pharmaceutical company that manufactures abortifacients, sort of, uh, you know, things of this sort. What is the difference between that approach and, and ESG? And, and take a minute, if you wouldn't explain Biden's veto and its implications. Well, the difference between that approach is that you're making the decision uh, and you're doing it based on conscience. Uh, so it's your money uh, and you're making that call. Now, tobacco companies are profitable. So it may well be that by excluding a tobacco company from your mutual fund, you might be giving back some profit. You might be you know, having less return. I'm not saying you will necessarily, but you might. Right. But that's something you're that's a cost that you're bearing. Um, but instead, we have situations where we have pension funds, like, for instance, public pension funds um, that are managed by the Black Rocks of the world or even the vanguards of the world. Um, and that situation is they have what's called a fiduciary obligation, which means they have to put the benefit of the of the pensioners or the future pensioners first. Uh, and so they have to get the highest risk adjusted return that they can get. And that's been the rule since the 1970s, since we just talked about the 1970s, the passage of ERISA in the 70s. Uh, basically, you've got one job if you're a fiduciary uh, and you're managing pension assets, and that job is to increase the probability of that pensioner having you know, a good retirement. Uh, what ESG does is it comes in and says, well, there are other things we need to take into account here. We need to take into account the impact on the environment and on, on society in general. Um, and, and when they do that, 
it's not politically even-handed, not, not by a long shot. It's coming from the left. So in essence, what they're doing is they are balancing investment decisions uh, off against um, social and political agenda decisions. Uh, and by doing that, they are muddying the waters about that, what's called fiduciary duty. Okay, so fiduciary duty was the understanding for a long time under the Trump administration. They made that very explicit. They said, listen, if you want to use these E, environmental, S, social, or G, governance, like board stuff, factors, when you're making investment decisions, you have to show that it's for the good of the retirees. You have to, you have to demonstrate, you have to bear the burden of proof that this is, good, this is good as an investment philosophy, not just as a political or social goal. If you can do that, then you can go ahead and use them. But you can't just automatically assume that just because, you know, it's, just because it's bad for polar bears, it must also be bad for investors. Uh, you can't just automatically take your politics or your social agenda and slap it into your investment decision-making matrix. Uh, what happened is the Biden administration came along and reversed that and, and said, no, you don't have to demonstrate anything. You can just assume that these ESG factors are good for investors. Congress said, no, 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 we want to go back to the rules the way they were before. Uh, we want to go back to that fiduciary standard. All of the decisions made by qualified pensions, by the, those that are covered by pension laws, if it's a real pension, it, it's got to put the fi financial interest first, uh, and then Biden vetoed that, which is his first and only veto, which in essence is Biden saying, I don't believe the fiduciary standard. It's him siding with the Black Rocks of the world, which have these ESG funds, which charge extra fees but do not produce better results for that it, and it's and basically it was an action of siding with BlackRock against pensioners against you know, retired school teachers retired firefighters, retired police officers uh, it was really a remarkable decision and, and it shows what a shift we have in the Democratic Party uh, except Joe Manchin and some of the other uh, Democrats uh, look I'm from Pittsburgh around here we had what I would call pension Democrats those are the people who gave us this stuff in the 1970s they were looking out for pension plans they didn't want Wall Street raiding pension plans they they wanted to make sure that pension plans were looking out for the little guys they were fighting to allow to not so the companies couldn't you know, use bankruptcy to get out of their pension obligations. What's happened to the pro-pension Democrats? Yeah. Now the pro-BlackRock pro Democrats, they're, side, they're utterly aligned with these gigantic Wall Street firms against the clear and obvious interest of retirees. Yeah, and sadly, the ones that in the end are going to lose are going to be the retirees. Jerry, we appreciate the insights. We're out of time. Jerry Boyer, he is again the... Um publisher of Affluent Investor Daily. Information available on the web at affluentinvestor.com. Always insightful to spend some time with Jerry Boyer. Speaking of spending time, we'll have some insightful time with Rick Fry, senior pastor of Rock Church Danville, coming up next as Lifeline continues. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. 
the explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.